It's a light breakfast with Shaz, and uh, it is a Mind Matters Free Clinic, so call us with your questions. Now, with me today is Dr. Philip George. He is a consultant psychiatrist at IMU. Good morning, Dr. Philip. Good morning, Shaz. Yes, some sad news. Uh, reading this uh, it just made me so super sad. A tragic mm. event in Kuching. A 16-year-old girl died mm. from suicide after 69% of people voted for her to die in an IG poll. She wanted to commit suicide, right. and she put a poll up, and uh, she decided to go with it when she mm. found that 69% of people voted yes. That's really terrible. I mean, uh, you know, this isn't the first case of people listening to someone on the other end of social media. And uh, I remember, you know, the Momo challenge and uh, yeah. all these people that were compelled to follow what mm. social media and other people tell them to do. How can we prevent our young people from, you know, succumbing to yeah. this kind of pressure? One of the most common causes for suicide is depression. 90% of suicide is related to depression. Depression is a treatable illness. Now, I don't think you can find the support and treatment on social media. It's not going to be controlled. It's not going to be you know, monitored. I think there are better options than looking at social media as a mm-hmm. way to decide you know, how to cope with your depression. We also know that most people who have depression and are suicidal most often have made up their decision. And all they may need is, you know, a small trigger to take them to the next step. Right. And uh, so I think it's important for people on social media to be aware that, one, they can't get the advice that they need with the mental health problem on social media. And yeah. they need to look for professionals in that. Right. Uh, we're now in the process of actually trying to create apps for young people to identify, you know, what sort of things they can do themselves to help themselves with low moods and anxiety because it's become really, really very common among young people now to go through more stress than what we used to go through. So a generation later and people are going through a lot more difficulties and catastrophes than, you know, maybe we used to go through. And they need the support and the skills to deal with that. Okay. Um, if we were to come across on our social media posts of people wanting to quit their lives, I, you know, using yeah. the commas here, what should we immediately do to perhaps save them? Can we save them? Should we even get involved? Yeah, no, I think we have a responsibility to get involved. And I think the important thing is to maybe tell them there is hope. Most suicide survivors actually regret having tried to do something to themselves. Right. You know, and they they realize that if they had the help at that moment, if somebody just changed their mind or said something else to, you know, make them think that there was hope, they would have maybe not actually attempted suicide as well. So I think it's important to maybe encourage people to think about getting help, that, you know, that the people do recover and that suicide doesn't have to be the option. All right. Well, give us a call if you have any questions about your mental health on 039543333 or our DG Lightline. Leave us a voice note at 016-510-8888. Now, Desmond has a question about how to approach someone who is terminally ill when there's an awkwardness in the relationship. That's up next here on Light. It's a My Matters Free Clinic with Dr. Philip George and Desmond had this question close family friend of mine he, she's terminally ill and then I realized the people around her like family and friends they're all shying away you know they just don't want to be around her anymore they don't call I don't know I think maybe they, they, these people don't know how to act in front of her because they know like death is coming soon and 
they don't want to feel bad and stuff like that. So, oh, wow. any advice? Any advice, Dr. Philip? It can be a little awkward, yeah? But I yeah. don't think we should abandon our friends who are terminally no, ill. No, absolutely not. Now, people who actually have a terminal illness go through different stages. And, you know, sometimes the stages can last for a little longer than expected. So, there's the first stage of denial and bargaining. And then the second stage of anxiety and depression. And, and then finally, they may reach some resolution. But while getting to resolution, they can have a lot of, you know, changing emotions and feelings. And it's, un- it's important for family and friends to understand this, that sometimes the emotions and feelings are not a result of, you know, them being that way, but it's because they've been actually diagnosed with a very serious illness and they know that, you know, they don't have much time left. So support and understanding, I think it's really important. Most people with a terminal illness want to be treated as normal people. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want perhaps most of the time the sympathy and the extra attention. So just doing the same things that you usually do, but maybe spending a little bit more time with them will be really helpful. Yes, It'd be useful to think about reminiscent sort of therapy. So, you know, maybe taking them back to the good things that happened in their lives. So they have positive memories as well. And I think very importantly, most people who are terminally ill want to resolve certain things in their lives and live peacefully. And that's important for others as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a loved one who's passed away and they had a feud with some family member and that never got resolved. The person who survives is still going to suffer with stress and frustration about not having resolved that. So I think it's important to try and make loose ends actually sort of uh, resolved. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, I I think that's what friends and families can actually help. All right. Well, hope that helps you, Desmond. Now, coming up, Jennifer has a question about her jealous boyfriend and how he's trying to navigate his own depression. That's up next here on Light. This is a light breakfast with Shaz, and it's a Mind Matters Free Clinic with Dr. Philip George. And on our DG Lightline at 16510 a question from Jessica. She writes, I would like to inquire about my boyfriend. He's always depressed and confused about our relationship, as both of us are from different religions and our parents are not agreeable to this. But recently he was facing retrospective jealousy even though I have been loyal to him since the very beginning of this relationship and it for him is too much to handle and he has visited the psychiatrist and then suggested for us to take a break. Any advice on what I should do to help him? What is retrospective jealousy? <laughs> well, I think what she's trying to you know, imply is that perhaps things that she you know, did in the past oh. is brought up in his mind as something that he's uncomfortable with, maybe right. her previous boyfriends or things like that, which shouldn't really shouldn't be part of your present relationship. And so if it is happening, then it may indicate low self-esteem and lack of confidence. Symptoms which are very common in depression and anxiety. So, yeah, I think, you know, people who are going through a mental health problem will have emotional impact on their relationships as well. And so it's important to know where your boundaries are. There's only so much that you can do as, you know, a a boyfriend or a girlfriend in a relationship to help another person to deal with their emotional baggage as well. And, you know, if it goes beyond, then you are actually going to stress yourself out and maybe taking too much 
you know, that you can handle as well. So I, I'm glad that your boyfriend is actually seeking help and, you know, getting professional help. That's a f- big, important first step. I think importantly then is to find out, you know, what you can do to support him as well through that treatment and therapy. And uh, if the psychiatrist suggests that there should be a break, you know, uh, maybe a, a short time when you're away from each other I think that's an important aspect in the whole process as well and then you know sort of once he's better then looking at how to build and you know work on the relationship Mm -hmm. from there all right when we come back uh, a question about how to support a retired parent through their own life transition that's up next of course if you have a question for Dr. Philip call us on 03-9543-3333 here on light it's a light breakfast with Shaz and Mind Matters Free Clinic with Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU. Here's a question from Tan. My dad is now in his late 60s. He retired quite some time back. And at the moment, we could see that his morale, I would say, or his energy is not as what he used to be, you know, because back then when he was still working, he used to be a very energetic, very lively person but Mm. now not really i don't think so it's very much health related he's very healthy but i just guess his his morale is not where he used to be Mm. so is there anything we could do to make him sort of feel better about himself what are your thoughts here dr philip (laughs) yeah you know we don't actually plan our retirement and that's really sad because especially with our lifespan now increasing, we need to be able to understand that having long periods of doing doing nothing is actually going to have an impact on ourselves emotionally and physically as well. And so when people retire, they need to have a plan on what they're going to do post-retirement. This is especially more important for men because, you know, women, when they retire, sometimes they find it easy to just go back into, you know, some of the household things that they used yeah. to do. Domestic things or yeah. pick up new hobbies. That's right. And and they feel, you know, needed and wanted and uh, occupied. But men just find that they can't be involved in any of this. And then sometimes they get, you know, maybe interfering with <laughs> their spouse's <laughs> activities and, you know, then create uh, relationship issues and problems as well. So if retirement is not planned, it actually increases the risk of psychological, social problems mm-hmm. as well. Now, the other thing is that uh, very commonly as we age, our energy levels reduce, our, you know, maybe our thinking and everything else start to decrease. So we need to start to stimulate our own body and our minds as well. Being active in exercise, in, you know, mental activity, to developing stimulation, learning a new thing, maybe even enrolling for a language class, you know, all this will support and help in our aging process as well because the less activity we do the higher the risk of you know decay and just degeneration and that includes things like dementia as well so we can actually start to put stops or you know reduce the risk of dementia in our aging as well yeah could it be um, a fear of financial loss yeah. um, that could contribute to uh, someone who's retiring yep. um, their depression and their worries Absolutely. I mean, I think in the past, <clears throat> we thought, you know, our lifespans were only up to about late 60s. And so, you know, EPF and other savings were maybe sufficient till that period. But now we're living on till about late 70s. And so, you know, financially, we may actually be strapped. 
It's a light breakfast with Shaz, and it's a My Matters Free Clinic with Dr. Philip George. Cecilia has written into our DG Line line at 016-510-8888. Her question is about spending. She says, I have this really bad habit of buying things I don't need, and the compulsion to buy comes when I least have the extra money to spend on trivial things. Mm. Why am I like this? How can I stop? Well, there is a new category in the DSM-5 that's called compulsive buying disorder. And it's thought to be similar to OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. So very often it's associated with obsessions first. And these are irrational thoughts. You know, the irrational thought that comes to your mind, oh, I need to buy this, even though I have something similar. I just need to have it. I need to buy it. And if I don't, I'll get anxious. And so typically with OCD, there's a lot of anxiety that triggers the compulsion. So, you know, the obsession starts first and then the need to do it and then the compulsion occurs and then the anxiety is reduced. But after that, it's the guilt and remorse about having spent that money and, Mm -hmm. you know, realize that it was was completely unnecessary as well. Right. So I think it's identifying first what the common triggers are. You know, because usually it's a way of coping with day-to-day stress. Right. Uh, And so if you can identify those triggers, then you can find alternate ways to deal with that stress. The second is, you know, trying to block that obsession from moving on to a compulsion. So dealing with anxiety. So when the obsession occurs, then finding ways to switch off, maybe distractions, relaxation techniques are helpful, breathing exercises, Mm -hmm. yoga. You know, so you take your mind off that short period and the compulsion usually fades wow okay so Um, this is really an actual thing is it oh yep yep (laughs) well dr philip thank you so much for your great advice this week thank you shaz once again very quickly the details of the conference coming up in july yep so it's the malaysian conference on healthy aging which will be held at the university malaya clubhouse uh, in the university malaya campus it's from the 24th to the 26th of july all right, and I do believe our f- good friend Dr. Rajbans will be also uh, speaking at that. Absolutely, nation. Dr. Rajbans and Dr. Angela mm. uh, and myself will all be there as speakers. Yep. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Philip. Thank you, Shaz.